and making us, oh, okay, got that, thanks. <laughs> yes, so uh, interesting, Richard, what you read there this morning. <clears throat> I love how the Holy Spirit dovetails things, but um, so I, I'm, 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 I was still um, sort of looking at Pentecost and um, it's coincidentally, of course, there's no coincidentally, I, I'm reading in the book of Acts. And that's just where my reading was. And, um, and of course, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And um, Peter, Peter, who had denied Jesus, who was, you know, saying, Oh, Jesus, I, I will die with you, um, turns around and denies Christ. And then, of course, Jesus comes and restores him. And, uh, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit. So uh, Pentecost, uh, actually, I'm just going to, Gord, can you make it so that I can share a screen? I, I make Gord the host so he can let people into the meeting because I, mi I miss them. <laughs> so I let him do that, but uh, I'll just let him share the screen because I'm just going to show you. Um, study Bibles are so great because they do so much of the work for us. Um, you should be able to now. Okay, thanks, hon. So I'm just going to. Just it's just a lot quicker to show you this chart. Can y'all see that? These these are the feasts. Um, everybody seeing that? Gord, can you say yes or no? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Okay, so just just quickly, um, I think we know we know some of these things already. Just to make them a little more explicit, um, and this gives you the timing of it. But Passover, killing the lamb, of course, in Egypt, and putting the blood in the doorpost, and then Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's the fulfillment. Um, the feast of unleavened bread. Um, which which began right after that in the from the 14th day to the 15th day clean out the old leaven just as in fact um when christ died <clears throat> and took took our sin and and that's the uh the matzah on the on the unleavened bread there on in the picture and then the first fruits when there was a promise of harvest to come and Christ has been Christ has risen the first fruits, and then Jesus goes away, so the Comforter can come, and then we have Pentecost, or the uh, Feast of Weeks, and there was there were two wave offerings, two loaves of bread. Also very interesting because Jesus is is the bread of life. And Jew and Gentile becoming one. So some people say that represents Jew and Gentile each a loaf 50 days after the first fruits. So after Christ was crucified, then he appeared to the guys for 40 days. And then they were in the upper room waiting for that last 10 days. And, uh, and then he comes and fulfills that part of the, the feast. So I just want to show you the rest of the feasts of Israel because, um, let's make it a little bigger here. 
So the remaining feasts, which have yet to be fulfilled, are the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And um, so it the regathering of Israel in preparation for the Day of Atonement, Israel repenting and looking to the Messiah in one day, families of the earth coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of, Booth, of Booths and the new heaven and earth where God tabernacles with men. And you can uh, find these in the, in your scriptures. I just wanted to say that because those are God's feasts. They're not, they weren't man's idea. They were the feasts that were handed down and we're not to become Jews, obviously. Jew and Gentile formed a new man, a new creation, but God's plan uh, will always reflect those feasts and what he does in fulfillment. So if he fulfilled so precisely down to hours and minutes, the first feasts, um, I think you can pretty much assume those remaining feasts are going to figure in very heavily. So I get excited around a Jewish feast time because I know that um, dates and feasts and anniversaries like that are huge to the Lord in that uh, though we don't know the day or the hour, not even the angels, that those times are always going to be significant in the kingdom of heaven. He didn't put them in place for nothing. And he said to observe them as, as uh, forever feasts. So um, let me just pray here. So Father, I just thank you for your incredible detailed plan. I thank you that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I thank you that nothing happens by happenstance in the universe, Lord, but that you are aware and you are outside of time and you've already seen it happen. And it's not that you go to plan B or plan C or plan D. God, you are the great conductor, the orchestrator, the power that holds the whole universe together. All things hold together in Christ. And so, Father, we, we just acknowledge that you are in charge. You always have been. You always will be. And that you have appointed times and purposes. And that your purposes are guided by the kind intention of your will, Ephesians says. So we can trust in you. We can have at the utmost confidence that you are in charge and that you will bring about your purposes and that it will be good because you are good. Everything you made, you said, it is good. It is good. And you have a remedy for all the things that um, are trying to work against you, but are already defeated. So God, thank you. Thank you for who you are and that we can look to you, throw ourselves on you, and with confidence uh, know that you are working out your good plans and purposes in the earth. Amen. Uh, I was going to say was, I take things literally at times. And when the Lord told me to put the blood of the lamb at the doorpost of Bruce's house, I looked... I went looking for a lamb and I couldn't find one. I didn't know if there was a farmer anywhere near that had a lamb. 
And I thought, even if I did find them, is this farmer going to allow me to take the blood of this lamb? And I came back, I couldn't find the lamb. And I figured, well, maybe I'm just going to have to buy a, a roast of lamb and get the blood from there. And at that time, I couldn't find even the roast. And Madeline called me and I said to her, you know, I'm, uh, I have a problem. And she says, what kind of a problem? I said, the Lord told me to put the blood of the lamb over the doorframe of Bruce's house. I said, I went looking for a lamb and I went and looked for the roast. I said, because I couldn't find a lamb. So I figured if, if I could just get the blood from the lamb, from the roast, you know, that'll be okay. She was laughing. She says, mom, she says, Bruce would kill you. She says, if she went there and put blood on this doorway. <laughs> she says, that's not what God meant. She says, it's the blood of protection. I said, I didn't know that. <laughs> he just told me to put the blood of the lamb over his doorframe. <laughs> but anyway, she, so I just prayed for the protection. I didn't get the lamb. Thanks so much, Marilyn, for, for being obedient. Um, even when our, our, our thoughts of what obedience is might not be quite what, what God had in mind. But thank you for your efforts and, and your faithful prayers for us. Yeah, amen. You know, <clears throat> Marilyn, what's so awesome is you hear you hear, you heard the voice of the Lord say that, and you didn't have the fullness of the explanation yet, but, um, you know, the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit helped you get there. And, but you hear, <laughs> that's a really awesome thing. And you hear, cause you're listening, you know? Uh, so that's, that is, uh, that's how we start to, to hear is to put ourselves in a place where, where we, uh, we listen I was, um, I, so I was looking in the book of Acts and Acts 2, uh, looking at when the Holy Spirit fell and Peter becomes this incredible preacher, um, seemingly overnight, um, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he preaches, it's early in the morning, and he preaches a, a sermon that um, we would probably find quite aggressive, almost abrasive, tells the people they've sinned. They killed the Prince of Peace and they're cut to the heart. They're absolutely cut to the heart. And I think it's, um, it's interesting to just know, to note God's pattern <clears throat> for the church. This is a birth of the Pentecost comes and it's the birth of the church age. And the church is birthed into power and boldness and truth. They are certainly, Peter was not politically correct. Uh, you, he never was. And even after the Holy Spirit came on him, he still wasn't. <laughs> and he spoke the truth and God used it to convict the Jews and like cut them to the quick. And, and so 3000 people are saved at this first presentation of the plan of God and the Holy Spirit quickens the Jews' knowledge of the scriptures. 
and they see how Jesus is the Messiah and that these things were fulfilled in him. And it says then um, that the crowd responds to this um, powerful preaching and that um, 3,000 men were baptized and added to the church that day. And every believer, and I'm reading now from uh, Acts 2.42, this is the Passion Translation, so it's a little different than what you might be used to. Every believer was faithfully devoted to following the teachings of the apostles. Their hearts were mutually linked to one another, and they were sharing communion, just as Richard was mentioning. They were sharing communion and coming together regularly for prayer. Yeah, I just want to, I want to say this, um, you know, I, I, I just know that our, most everybody I've talked to there, there who are in the Lord, their prayer life has ignited during this time. It just um, has been a time of intimacy and a time of pressing in to know the Lord. And, um, and again, as we come back together, let that be the pattern that we do not lose is that we, we come together, whether it's in twos or threes, or, you know, now we're allowed together in bigger groups. Uh, we can still, you can still do it over zoom for that matter, but let us not lose this um, sign of, of the life of Christ in us is that we pray. And um, I know Marilyn's been saying she's never prayed so much in the spirit before, you know, God just takes over in tongues and I find I'm praying the Lord's prayer uh, so much. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my life as it is in heaven, in my household as it is in heaven, in our fellowship, in our town of hope, in our province, in our nation, in our world. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And the believers were coming together and there was a deep sense of holy awe that swept over everyone. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers were in fellowship as one body. They shared with one another whatever they had. <clears throat> Out of generosity, they even sold their assets to distribute the proceeds to those who were, who were in need among them. Daily, they met together in the temple courts and in one another's homes to celebrate communion. So here we have the power of the Lord's Supper again was the centerpiece. It's the centerpiece of their communion is the body and the blood of, of the, of the savior who died and rose again. And they shared meals together with joy, joyful hearts and tender humility. I like that phrase. They were continually filled with praises to God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily, those who were coming to life, coming to Christ. So the next, the next, um, incident that we have recorded then in Acts is Peter and John who are still going to the temple. And so they were still kind of <clears throat> in their old format, but everything in them had been changed. Peter and John are not the Peter and John of pre-Holy Spirit's arrival, <laughs> but they're going to the temple and they're carrying the life of Christ in them. So one afternoon, this is uh, chapter three, Peter and John went to the temple for the three o'clock prayer. And as they came to the entrance called the beautiful gate, they were captured by the sight of a man crippled from birth, being carried and placed at the entrance to the temple. He was often brought there to beg for money from those going in to worship. 
And when he noticed Peter and John going into the temple, he begged them for money. It's a very, very common situation of anyone um, handicapped in any way was um, for them to be placed near the temple so that people, the godly people who had in their uh, regular habits of giving alms to the poor and giving to the needy, um, that they would go and they would beg there. It's interesting that this man has been crippled from birth, so he's never walked, and he uh, is placed there by someone, and so he begs for money, and that's how he, he maintains himself. Peter and John, looking straight into the eyes of the crippled man, said, look at us, which is very interesting because if you picture the man, he's he's down on ground level, obviously. He's on a mat or something you know, a gunny sack or something. He's sitting on the, he's sitting on the ground. Maybe he's laying on the ground and his eyes are scanning the crowd for, you know, when you, if you sit out, if you sit in a mall or sit on the side of a street for a while and just watch people, you know, you, you kind of get to read people, don't you? You can sort of figure out in some instances what's going on. But if you did this your whole life, like however old, how, whatever, whatever age this guy is, right? you did this your whole life, you kind of know who you're wasting your time on and who might, you know, who's reaching into their pocket, who's slowing down, you know where to look. And he wasn't looking, apparently he wasn't looking at Peter and John, maybe he figured out oh, these guys are just, they're not too wealthy or whatever. He'd, he'd already looked away from them. They're just fishermen. They're fishermen. Yeah. Whether or not he could tell that. But um, Peter says, look at us. Now, expecting a gift, he readily gave them his attention. And Peter says, I don't have any money. You know, we're used to silver and gold. Have I none? But what I have, I give to you by the power of the name of Christ Jesus of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. Stand up and walk. This doesn't seem to me to be a premeditated sort of encounter. You know, oftentimes with Jesus, I had the impression that maybe the father laid out to him the whole day when he would get up in prayer and he'd sort of know um, some of the people he was meant to heal or encounter or speak to. And so this is the first sort of power encounter. Tongues come onto people, the flames of fire. You know, we go from Israel having a a pillar of fire being led in the wilderness by a pillar of fire. And now they've got individual pillars of fire. That should tell us something, right? And then there's this power encounter where Peter and John are just so full of the spirit of God. And they said, here's, here's what Jesus of Nazareth does. And, um, and they just raise him up. Peter held out his right hand to the crippled man. And as he pulled the man to his feet, Suddenly, power surged into his crippled feet and ankles. And the man jumped up and he stood there for a moment, stunned, and began to walk around. And as he went into the temple courts with Peter and John, he leapt for joy. You can imagine. And shouted praises to God. This is someone who has never walked. You know, sometimes these, these stories are so familiar to us. I think we can sort of lose the awe and wonder when I got Carol's news this week, I was I was in awe and wonder, but I just you can only imagine somebody who has never walked. There is no muscle tone. 
there is there was nothing there to support his walking, much less leaping around and dancing. And so he is shouting and leaping and dancing and having a good time. I always remember teaching this to our kids when we lived in Africa and we went walking and leaping and praising God. We were singing that song and we were we were marching around our mud hut and singing and leaping and, and dancing like we were the lame man, um, because we all are, you know, we all are in some sense, like Marilyn saying, literal blood and spiritual blood. We're all handicapped. We're all lame or blind or damaged in some way. And when Christ comes and touches us and heals us, we need to walk and shout and jump and dance and the people saw him jumping up and down and heard him glorifying God. And they realized it was the crippled beggar that had passed by in front of the beautiful gate. And astonishment swept over the crowd. For they were amazed at what happened to him. And, I, you know, it's just like such a familiar story. But, you know, um, we just... <clears throat> God in us is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And um, it, it just, I know that he is preparing the church for um, being the church that people are longing to see and know. A lot of people don't even know there is someone like Jesus. And um the thing is the church grows and walks in these things, you know, in um, Acts nine, we're going to see this guy, Ananias, who was not an apostle. You know, if you think it was just the apostles, Ananias was a disciple. He wasn't an apostle. And he goes and he hears God say, go, go down to straight street and uh, to the house of uh, where Saul, the terrorist is. And, pray for him. He's fasting. He's waiting on me. And Ananias hears the Lord and he goes and he prays for Saul and the scales fall from his eyes and he gets him baptized and he gets him filled with the Holy Spirit. And he is just a disciple. My deepest, I don't even want to say fear, but I do not want to lose. I only want, you know, to see accelerated what God is doing in the company of believers that he is preparing for the time that we will walk into, because what happens after this is the church grows for a while. <clears throat> and I want to be a doomsayer here, but, and then it's persecuted and it's scattered. And the reason I think that it, the church, cause I look at the, I look at the book of Acts and go, wow, God, how did they have, so little in a way, you know, like so little training and do so much. But, you know, they were the, the first church was Jewish. They were Jews. And so they knew the scriptures and they knew how to be leaders and establishers of the faith in their own households. Every Jewish man led his family in worship every week, every day. Okay, and you can say, well, that was a religion, but it was the truth. The scriptures of who God is are true. They do not change. And so when the Holy Spirit came in and quickened that truth in the Jewish mindset who had been 
for generations trained in the Holy Scriptures who knew the word of God, when they were dispersed and went out and God sent them out everywhere, they had a format for perpetuating the gospel. And then they had power, but they knew how to train up their own household in the way they should go. And they knew how to perpetuate their faith. So I think that's why, you know, Jesus, God planned that Jesus would be a Jew and that they would be the ones who were the keepers of, of covenant and of scripture so that the, the, the faith would be perpetuated. So I, I know God has <clears throat> such amazing plans. And as I read this account of <clears throat> the uh, lame man being healed and, and the, the plan of God that he would be at the gate called beautiful or the gate called wonderful. And there's not, scholars aren't really sure which gate it was. There were quite a few gates around the temple courtyard and into the temple. And not, he wouldn't have gotten in, but he was near a gate. And a gate is an entranceway. And Jesus is the gate for the sheep, right? Ultimately, he says, I am the gate of the sheep. And Jesus is the beautiful gate. So here we have a man who goes from, you know, not having much of a life that we would count as a very good life to being up beside the beautiful gate and actually getting to enter into the gate. And it says that his feet and ankles were strengthened. And, you know, I, my son, Nathaniel, teases me that he has some army buddies that you can say anything to them and they can make it perverse, but he has a mom that you can say anything to her and she can make a sermon out of it. So uh, I'm not, I wasn't just looking for coincidence here, but isn't it amazing when I thought about this and that he's at the gate beautiful and then they go and they stand on Solomon's porch and that the man is healed of of deformity or frailty in his ankles. And it made me think of Ezekiel's river. It made me think of it's Ezekiel 47. It made me think of uh, Ezekiel who, I don't know, for me, the history and the setting of a context of a place always fills things out for me because Ezekiel was studying to be a priest in Jerusalem and when he was about 18, uh, Jerusalem was ransacked by the Babylonians. And Daniel and his buddies probably were about 15, and they got carried off in the first deportation to Babylon. And Jeremiah was a contemporary as well. Jeremiah was preaching at that time. And Ezekiel was studying to be a priest. And so for about 10 years, he was left in the land when he was 30 he could become a priest so he's probably about 28 and here comes the second deportation and ezekiel gets carried off to babylon and he never gets to serve in the temple and he never gets to you know be a priest in jerusalem and while he's in babylon god gives him a vision of the temple and it's a temple that was never built with human hands 
which sounds kind of familiar, right? In heaven, there is a temple that is not built with human hands. And Ezekiel doesn't get to serve God in an earthly temple, but God gives him this incredible revelation. He has a series of visions. And out of a very awful time, you know, deportation and having to leave, they couldn't worship without a temple. They said, you know, our captors asked us for songs, but we'd hung our harps on the trees. There was no worship without a temple. They didn't quite know what to do. And God says, in this time, I will reveal my glory through you to the nations. And I just, again, everywhere I'm looking in this Old Testament, I'm seeing parallels for, you know, we think, oh, God, with this year has been a bit of a waste. You know, lots of people feeling like 2020 was like an entire waste. Oh, my goodness. A year. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years like a day. God is forming his church. And as we submit to him and see his purposes and press into him to know him, and Ezekiel says, oh, my plans, because he did he never says this. He could say this. I'm speculating. Ezekiel could have said, I didn't get to become a priest. I didn't get to serve my purpose and my calling. I didn't get to serve my people. All my plans got messed up. What's going on? Are you even in charge, God? Are you going to punish us forever? You know, they were in captivity because they disobeyed because they disobeyed. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to take exception. You know, people say, God didn't cause this bad thing, but he will use it for good. You know, that is true in a, in a, in a sense, but God is in charge. Either he is or he isn't, right? Either he is or he isn't. He could have eliminated Satan at the beginning of time in the garden and said, you're messing up my good plan. I'm taking you out right now at this point. But he doesn't. He left Satan in because Satan will serve the purposes of God. Satan is in the world so that the church can learn how to fight. Satan is in the world so the church can learn to walk in the authority that Christ won for us on the cross and when he rose again. Satan serves the purposes of God. He is not allowed to do more than God says. And if the church steps into the fullness of who she is, and knows the incredible power that God has accorded to us. I think we'll just see this whole time so much differently, and we should see it very differently than the world, that God is bringing the church back into a pattern of purity, of holiness, of no mixture. You know, there were Old Testament laws about not having mixture. We've talked about this a little bit before. So he takes Ezekiel to Babylon. It's interesting that there's a huge division in, in the people of God during this time as to what's going on, as we have right now. There's huge division. Jeremiah is saying, you're going to be there 70 years. All fits with the plan. May as well build houses. If you prosper, Babylon will prosper. And there's, there's contrary voices. And people said, God, God can't be doing it this way because... It doesn't fit the pattern. And God, basically, Jeremiah says, you need to listen and you need to submit to God. And God has the right to do what he wants to do. 
So here's Ezekiel, and um, starting in about chapter 40, he, he's escorted around by an angel, and he's, he's in Jerusalem in the spirit, and it says, then he brought me, then he brought me, pretty much all those chapters start with, then he led me, then he brought me, and he walked me all through <clears throat> this very detailed, elaborate measuring of a temple that did not in, in the physical exist in this world. And he shows Ezekiel these patterns and he says to Ezekiel, show the people the perfection of my temple and they will basically be in awe of me and know that I am with them. And it says, and he led them, he led me to a gate facing towards the east. And there's very specific instructions about who can go in and out of the gate and that the gate must be closed because Jesus will come through that gate eventually. And the glory of the Lord in chapter 43, the glory of the Lord comes into the temple by way of the gate facing towards the east. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And he's a voice from in the house said to me while the man was standing near me. He said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name. And so there's this holy place that gets filled with the temple of the Lord, um, the glory of the Lord. <clears throat> And then um, we have this account in um, Ezekiel 47. Then he, the angel, brought me to the door of the house. And behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house <clears throat> towards the east, for the house faced east. And there was water flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east and behold water was trickling from the south side <clears throat> and when the man went out towards east with the line in his hand he measured a thousand cubits and led me through the water reaching to the ankles and he measured a thousand and led me through the water reaching the knees and again he measured a thousand cubits and led me through the water water reaching the lines and again he measured a thousand cubits and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me back to the bank of the river. And for me, I, I just was really picking up on the fact that this man was healed in his ankles. And that the river of life in Ezekiel's vision, starts out being ankle deep. And then the man measures a thousand cubits and leads him through the water. So he's right in the water and he goes knee deep. And then he measures another thousand and he goes waist deep and he measures another thousand. And that it's a river that cannot be crossed. It's a river that is, 
is so deep it you would have to swim in it and i just again i just felt like god there's no there's no coincidence in what you do you have you have things that you are saying and repeating for different times but similar themes and i thought here's a man who was crippled in his ankles and meets the water of life at the beautiful gate and is healed. And I just felt like it was just the beginning of, of um, what the Lord wanted to do in the church and indeed what he did in the early church, inviting them to come deeper to the point where, as we mentioned earlier, Peter's very shadow healed people and people would come and they would just put their, their sick and their lame and their ill and their demonized in the street and Peter, where they knew Peter would go by and Peter would walk by and his shadow would heal them. And this, I guess, is, is just, um, is my prayer. This is my prayer that we would not live at ankle depth, that we would not just go, oh, great, we get to go back to church because I don't think that was ever what church was supposed to look like. Because <laughs> from what I read, church is to equip people to change the world and to spread the gospel of the good news because they don't have a lot. We live in a town called Hope, which I think is remarkably uh, a commission for the, for the church of hope you know, to carry that, that great joy of, um, of the gospel. So as we, you know, as we anticipate gathering again, the invitation, and it's always an invitation, you know, it's, it's for whosoever will. And I, I was sharing with um, the Bible study group on Wednesday that, I'm, I'm doing the, this course, a uh, number of courses from the Israel, Israeli Bible Center and just learning it more about Jewish culture. And they say, you know, the Bible doesn't need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread with some Hebrew mindset to understand um, the fullness of what a Hebrew, a Jewish person would have understood. And one of the things in the ceremony of communion and the cup is that. It was also part of, of, a, of a betrothal ceremony. We experienced this in uh, Chad when someone would get engaged. The man would go to the home of the young woman he wanted to marry and would propose to her. And she, she could respond yes or no to the proposal. And if she said yes, then officially they were engaged. They were, they were married. And then the proceedings and the bride price and everything would start to go into process. And then ideally he was to come and collect her on a white horse, which sounds very familiar, right? <clears throat> well, there weren't a lot of white horses in the area, but we had a white pickup truck. And so we would often be commissioned. Gord would go and have to take the groom to go to get the bride. And that was a status thing to go in the white pickup truck to get your bride. But in, in Jewish culture, <clears throat> the father, would often pick the bride for the son and it would be an arranged marriage. And the father, the father and the son would go to the home of the girl 
that they had identified to be his wife and they would offer her a cup of wine. And if she received the cup of wine, they were betrothed. And a betrothal was a marriage commitment. And if she received the cup, then the son would go home and he would start to build a room onto his father's house because that was, that was how usually the wife would go to the husband's household, which was also where, the same where we lived in Africa. And he would build a bridal chamber. He would build onto the house to receive his bride. And when the bridal chamber, when their room was done, the groom didn't say, now I'm going to get my bride. The father said, the room is ready. Now you can go get your bride. And then the groom would send word that he was coming and he would go on a white horse, usually in the middle of the night. And she would know he was coming, but she wouldn't know exactly when. And then he would come and he would collect his bride and there would be a wedding feast. And when you know these things, it's such a glorious thing to be invited to be part of the bride that Jesus chose you and that you said yes and that you share in the life of the bridegroom and that he says, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house are many rooms. If it was not so, I would have told you. And the disciples said, but when will you come again, Lord? And he says, it's not for you to know the times and the dates not even the angels, they long to look into these things. Not even the son knows, but the father sets the dates of when the son will come back for his bride. But the bride can see the signs and the bride is to prepare herself and to be ready. We are the betrothed and he's coming and he's coming. And it's such an incredible honor. I think if the world understood the honor that it is to be the beloved of Christ and that the tenderness and the mercy and the, that God chose me, that God chose you and that, that honor would keep us so close to him and so prepared to do whatever it would take to be ready for when he comes, not because we have to, but because we want to, because he's our love and he is our, he is our knight in shining armor to mix analogies and he's coming for us. And so that is a big, I guess, just my heart for us as a fellowship for the church that we would, we would just be so seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, you know, let's not be distracted in these times, but let's be those, you know, who have their lamps ready, who are waiting, who are prepared, who are pressing in, who hear, you know, so funny to me, the angel says to Ezekiel, after he's been like, he's soaking wet, he's, well, it's in the spirit, he's crossing the river, he's crossing the river, he's crossing the river, and the angel says, did you see this? It's like, you can be right in there. 
You could be right in the thick of it. But if you don't have eyes to see, if you don't have ears to hear, you're not going to perceive what God is doing. I love the things the angels say because I think they think we're pretty dense. And sometimes we are. So let's just ask God for spiritual eyes and spiritual ears not to miss the thing that he has for us in our time. He chose that we would live in this time and that we would be part of what he's doing in this time to bring the kingdom in fullness. So, amen.